Welcome to Cambridge Stronger, where culture counts and values matter most. I'm your host, Amy Weber, and I am joined today by my friend, David Wheat, the founder of Axiom Advisors, LLC. Thank you for coming on the show, David. My pleasure, always. Good to see you. So, first of all, I think our audience needs to know that you just recently celebrated your 15th anniversary with Cambridge. So, congratulations and thank you for trusting us that long with your business. To begin, maybe you could just start by sharing your story with our listeners. How did you get started in this honorable profession that we're in? And more, maybe more importantly or more interesting to them is going to be, how did you get where you are today? You've had a great journey. Well, I, I sort of blame my start on my kids and their bad habits. I always said that I had three kids at home and they all wanted to eat and live indoors. And they wanted to eat every day. So I really got my start in the business. I was working for another firm out of Dallas in direct sales. I was selling to business owners. And I got recruited to an insurance agency that was concentrating on business insurance. It was an old mutual insurance company out of Worcester. Their package fit my experience. So I started out doing disability insurance for business owners and buy-sell agreements and sort of grew into the financial services business from there. And there was a, a man in our office that was our financial planner, sort of an in-house financial planner that took me under wing and began to mentor me. And I fell in love with financial planning right away. And probably five years in, I decided that, in fact, I remember I was on a, a trip with my son looking at colleges. And I stayed up all night with my new laptop and I wrote out this plan of this is what I want my business to look like. And 10 years later, I looked at that document. I was doing exactly what I'd written down. But there was a point about a year after where I just had a horrible, horrible quarter. And I had to make a decision. And my manager at the time suggested I start doing some different things to try to liven it up a little bit. And I just told him, I said, look, if I can't do this, I don't want to do anything. And I think that was a real turning point and a commitment to financial planning. I've charged my first fee in 1996, went through recessions and crises and all, all that, but I just fell in love with the business. And I think one thing that happened to me about 15 months into my experience there, it was in January, 1991, I got two widows referred to me. One had enough money and one did not. And it totally changed my perception of what we do and why we do it. That also was a real turning point for me. But I fell in love with planning. I still love planning and would recommend it to anybody. Heartbreaking, I know, to financial professionals when a client comes in and is not ready. So I'm intrigued. Did you accept both of those widows? And for the one that maybe wasn't completely prepared, how, how, do you, how do you approach that with a client? Well, it was interesting. The, the one that had adequate resources had them for no reason of their own. I mean, he, he was killed in an accident overseas. So we got company insurance and accident insurance, and he'd signed up for uh, supplemental insurance at work. So there was nothing that they had done that prepared them for the tragedy. And the other one, they just, the, the guy had just refinanced his house. She was in her 50s, had a big mortgage, no money, 
And yes, I took them both. In fact, we have a policy at Axiom Advisors that we will take a widow for no fee and work with them to the best of our ability to help them along the way. And I, I do that for personal reasons. My, my sister was widowed at age 29. So I know what it's like to try to raise children and, and navigate your life as a single mom. So uh, we just made that a policy. It's been our practice for about 20 years. That's the heart I know that exists in your organization. One more follow-up question on the opening stories that you shared with us. I believe I heard you say that you built a business plan and 10 years later, when you reflected back, you were doing what your business plan, exactly what your business plan said you should be doing. That's, I believe, should first be applauded, but it's unusual. And since that time, have there been any further business plans where maybe you looked back and found that you've had to adjust it for various reasons? Or, you know, I guess I'm trying to give the listeners an idea of whether it's mandatory that you get your business plans right the first time. Did you just get, were you just fortunate? Did you have a crystal ball? How does that work? Well, you know, as well as I do, that plans are only as good as the paper they're written on. And sometimes that's not very valuable. You know, I think, I think the key to writing a business plan, at least for me, was to have a very large picture, not to get into minutia, but, but have a, a more of a general vision of, of where you want to go and what you want it to look like. When I turned around and looked at my business 10 years after, it wasn't exactly what I'd written down, but it was really conceptually in the same vein. In, in the first place, the industry changes faster than than we are ready to keep up with. So we weren't in the same business in uh, 2006 as we were in, in 1996. But I think keeping in general and, and really basing your, your vision of what your business should be in who you are. If you're focused on planning, if that's your core competency and, and something you're really good at and something that you enjoy, then, then you need to move in that direction. In fact, I, I heard a, a comment one time that you know you've discovered your calling whenever you leave your office with more energy than you go to your office with. And I always thought that made sense to me because there were days, Amy, when I would meet with clients all day and we would work on their plans and measure their progress. And I would walk out of the of the office and just kind of chuckle that, that I could actually get paid for doing this because I would leave the office with much more energy than I came into the office with in the morning. Life's too short. So you just described exactly where I would, I hope everyone has the opportunity to land in a place where they find, feel that much passion about what they're doing for sure. So great advice. David, I know this. I know how passionate you are about planning. I know quite a bit about how your process works. I feel like our audience could really benefit from you in hearing what planning means to you, because planning does have different definitions in our industry. So maybe you could share just a little bit before we shift directions into another new and exciting topic as well about your process and what, is, what did planning mean to you and how did you facilitate that when the clients came in? Early on in my career, I had a, a, a man come in my office and he had a big thick binder. It's probably 200 pages. And uh, he, he walks in my office. He bought this plan from somebody else. I won't name the company, but uh, he drops it on, on my, my desk and says, what am I supposed to do with this thing? It dawned on me then that planning is not a book and it's not a report, it's a process. 
So when, when we approached planning and my partner, Brian Conway and I worked on this day by day by day, year after year, refining the process, because what we would try to do is to focus the client on what we call their mission, vision, values, and goals. Because what we discovered over, over the years that for some people, wealth is an end and for other people, it's a means to an end. We've all had people walk in our office that wants that they want us to take their portfolio and make more money than the last guy. Well, for that person, the wealth is an is an end in itself, and we we've chosen not to work with those people because I don't know that we can do what they want us to do. But the people that see their their resources as a a means to an end just need guidance and help to match up the resources with the goals and vision and values and then help them with practical ways to move them in the direction that they want to go. So that's been our philosophy of planning all along. And we have a bias where cash flow based planning as opposed to goal based, because what we found out as we focused on distribution planning and retirement, we found out that goals are pretty fungible. They change and expectations of what the future will be like also is, is very fungible. It will change. But cash flow doesn't. You know, we find that, that the way people spend their money and the way they handle their money is a fairly constant, even after they retire. So by focusing on cash flow, matching up resources with, with current and projected cash flow, we've developed a system that we felt would adequately help them make decisions along the way. And, and our goal was always to create a context for our clients to make good decisions. And there was never just one way to, to do something. There's always, there are always options. But what that did for us over the years, Amy, was that it helped us to keep the focus on the plan and not on the investments. So when, when we had the, the market slide in, in 2000, 2001, and 2002, we didn't lose any clients. In fact, we picked up clients because the focus was on the plan and not on the investments. And the same thing happened in 2008. So we felt like our approach to planning has served, served us extremely well. We tripled the size of our business after we joined Cambridge within the next few years, thanks to you and your partnership. But we never left our core of, of planning. This is what we do. You know, if you want somebody that does investments and grow your portfolio faster than someone else, we're probably not the people you want to see. So we would early on weed out prospects to see if they're a good fit for us and to see if we're a good fit for them. And if it wasn't a fit both ways, we wouldn't work with them. So, so we sort of loaded the deck and stacked the deck in our favor uh, in that way. And that tended to bring more people with similar goals and values into our office. You just hit on a real key message about building a successful business, in my opinion, which is the fact that you do need to sort through the opportunities that walk in the door and make sure that you're working with people who will value what you bring rather than many, especially when they're starting out, who pretty much have to take everybody. And it's a tough call, especially earlier in your career, to tell someone, I'm sorry, I don't think we're a good fit, but it certainly pays off in the end as evidenced by your success. Well, you don't go to McDonald's looking for a steak. And you don't go to Ruth Chris looking for a hamburger. 
You know, uh, a business can be successful only when it has a focus, becomes really skilled at delivering a particular experience to the client. So I think trying to do too many things is really detrimental to a business in the long run. Absolutely. So let's pivot and go a slightly different direction and tell us about your journey in terms of transitioning your business, bringing in a successor. You mentioned Brian, maybe start off by talking about your team and who surrounds you effectively. And then let's talk about how you're in the process of, I mean, let's face it, transition for most financial professionals in terms of succession planning is probably one of the most uncertain and emotional times in their lives because their business is their baby. And you've been very successful in making some phenomenal decisions in the, in the process that I think our audience can really benefit from. Well, I think to start with, I, once I realized the opportunity, I got in this to build a business, not to build a practice. I started, you know, there's the old slogan about beginning with the end in mind. I wanted to develop a, an operation that was not dependent upon me. And I think that's probably, if I had a piece of advice to give to people that are looking to sell their business is that if you're going to create a business, you can't build it around personality. You've got to build it around process. And so I recruited Brian Conway in 2002. He was coming out of the engineering field. He'd been running another company and he was actually my tenant. I had an office building. He was renting a, an office downstairs. And when I rented him the office, I chatted with him a little bit. And I said, well, if you ever need an opportunity, you should come upstairs and talk with me. Sure enough, they closed down the business he was running and he came upstairs and talked to me and we got him started from engineering to financial planning, which has been a really interesting journey. But he's a terrific guy, great character, great family, and very successful. He's very, very, a very good planner. In fact, when we talked to our clients about the transition, I, I told all of them, I said, you're really going to get an upgrade on this deal. I would say probably about 2015, he came to me and he said, David, I want to buy your business, but I don't want to do it when I'm 60 years old. So I said, all right, then let's talk and established a few ground rules. I mentioned one earlier. I told him, I said, Brian, as long as no one gets greedy, we can make almost anything work. And I think that's really important, especially when you look at some of the publications about valuations and what your business is worth and so forth. There's a greed factor that comes into almost every transaction that you have to be aware of. If it gets into the negotiation, it's going to go badly, I've found. So, and the other thing I, I said to Brian was that I said, you don't want to buy my business. You want to buy the business that you want to own. I said, so we need to look at this from the standpoint of what you want the business to be and begin moving in that direction so that when you take over, it'll be more like what you envision the business to be rather than my vision of what the business was. And we had an advantage in that we had developed our process together. Brian and I worked very closely. We would actually do peer review on each other's plans. If he got stuck on a plan, he would send it to me. If I got stuck on a plan, I would send it to him. So we, we weren't doing something different. We were working in the same lane, using the same tools and using the same business philosophy as to how we would deliver value to our clients. So I think that was a real head start for us in that he didn't have to learn how I was doing my business because he helped me build how I was doing my business. 
The other thing was our was our staff. We had an operations person, Lisa Cancellari, who had been she's been with us for 20 years. And in fact, her daughter now works with us. We we watched Alexa go from starting doing files when she was in the eighth grade to now she's graduated from college and working in the in the team. So I've always had the philosophy, Amy, that relationships are not disposable. And we focus on that and we treat people with respect in the office and we try to to make the office a, a place people enjoy coming to work and not a place where they have to go to work. So, so as we began the process, we spent about three years just ramping up to it. And then in 2019, we transitioned the business over. And, and during those three years, Brian sat in on all my client meetings and didn't say a word. The second year, we shared the presentation. And the third year, he did the presentation and I said very little. So we took time to bring our clients along and make sure that they were comfortable with him. And then once we did the transition, he was off to the races and doing really well. I think he's grown about 10% a year the last two years and uh, was up 10% again this year. So all in all, I guess it was six years, Amy, that we worked on this in terms of, of preparation and implementation of the succession plan. A couple of messages I feel worthy of repeating for our listeners. One is, so again, one of the biggest challenges sometimes for financial professionals is how and where to find their successor, their partner. And what I heard you perhaps encourage them to do is be open-minded because successors can show up in the strangest places. They could be tenants. They can be engineers. So don't be so laser-focused, perhaps, on trying to find someone that has the characteristics or the current career that you might expect. So that's great advice. And then to your point, the transition will be most successful if the egos are set aside and you focus on the business together and really invest in preparation. Would that be fair? I think that having a common process, if you find someone that's attracted to your process, the way you do your business, that's a real indicator that that may be someone that could be a prospective successor. Someone that is really focused on doing their own thing and doing it their own way may or may not be a fit, but if you find someone that's attracted to what you do and how you do it, I would pay attention to that because that may be an opportunity. Great advice. So, David, what are you doing today in the practice? Tell us how this has evolved and how do you contribute? You know, when we did the transition in January of, of 2019, I sort of walked around in circles for about six weeks because my calendar went from being extremely full to not so full. It, it, was, it was interesting, to say the least. Now, obviously, I still have some responsibilities. I still supervise. Brian and I probably talk once a week, just like we did before, about cases and about management and about staff. I'm a sounding board for him. Even though I'm not active in the business, we're, we're still very much partners in life, so to speak. Supervision is very different. An opportunity presented itself where we were able to bring a, a group from another, another firm and combine them with our group. And they came complete with an OSG. Nicole Reinhardt is a new partner of mine, and we're building a branch. And in fact, I was just doing the numbers at the end of the year. From the time we started, we've grown production on that group 60% in three years. And I can't take any credit for that. 
I think we've got great people that are doing a good job. My role in our partnership is to, to focus on practice management and planning and, and those advisors that want to put a business plan together or look at a marketing plan or, or some of the things, the nuts and bolts of running a practice, I sort of address those questions. And then uh, Nicole helps me understand what a supervisor does. <laughs> <laughs> you have been really lucky to find two great partners in your lifetime or your career time, I should say. She's a real star and an incredibly effective supervisor. So she puts me to shame. There's another tidbit of value. Surround yourself with brilliant people, and then maybe you can actually find time to do what you're passionate about and love the most. I've always said, Amy, if I'm the smartest person in the room, I'm in the wrong room. <laughs> so can you, in a couple of sentences, maybe share with us, what is this business about? In your heart, from your heart, what is this business all about? You know, I, I've been thinking about that a lot because... My gosh, Amy, there's so many different ways to do this business. Uh, we have one of our advisors that almost exclusively does 401k business. We have others that do completely do planning. We have advisors that just do investment management. The ultimate answer to that question is it's about finding people who have a need and meeting that need, whether it's a 401k plan or whether it's a, you know investment portfolio or financial plan. Uh, putting yourself in between a resource and someone who needs that resource and, and helping them get what they need is the key to any business, but especially this business. And I, I think one of my favorite things about Cambridge is that every other organization I've ever been involved with, they would always take the top producers and put them on the stage and honor them at the meetings. That's never happened at Cambridge. The only people that you honor are people of character that are that are serving their clients and serving their community. And I just think that's that's unique in the marketplace. And one of the things I'll never forget in Denver, 2009, we had our national conference and that was the first year that we did a fundraiser for a local charity. And I'll never forget the nun that came up and received a check for her orphanage. And I really think that's what this business is all about. Being able to understand that there's a whole world out there that you can make a difference in, even if it's just a little bit of money that everybody pokes in the kitty and gives to a local charity when we have a convention, or whether it's you know helping someone settle an estate plan, or whether it's somebody just putting together a retirement plan, or, or getting you know a young person started on, on a Roth IRA. There's so many ways that we can affect the outcome of a person's life by making, helping them make good choices. Let's face it, we are all, the, we are all the, the sum of the choices that we've made up to this point in time. But the decisions that we make today are gonna to affect the, the future that we all share. So I think this business is about putting people in a place to make really good choices so that they can have the future that they want. I appreciate those kind words. You are, and your organization is really the definition of the spirit of Cambridge. And we were really pleased to be able to honor you in that way. And to your point earlier, I think about doing business, these were not your exact words, but what I heard is what I also believe. Life is too short to work with people that you don't feel have core values and an ultimate mission and heart similar to yours. 
and together we've been very successful. So we've very much appreciated these last 15 years of wor working with you and watching you grow and watching your incredible success. So thank you for that. Oh, listen, two of the best decisions I ever made were hiring Brian Conway and joining Cambridge. Thank you. Well, we're, we're in good company because I'm a big fan of Brian's as well. So one of the favorite things I'm learning that our listeners appreciate when we shift gears from business for a little bit and talk about David Wheat, the man, the person, the human. So let's talk a little bit about what you do outside of work, outside of planning. And I hope you'll share a little bit about your a beautiful partner in crime, Ginger, while you're sharing your personal side. Of yeah, it. we will mark 45 years this August. She is a special woman. Yeah. You know, they say that behind every successful man is a woman rolling her eyes. I do know they say that. <laughs> <laughs> and that's probably true in our case. I've got two children that will celebrate this year their 20th anniversaries. You know, as, as your listeners can do the math, I'm not a young man anymore. So I'm in a chapter where the pace of life is not really changing that much. It's just going in different directions. I'm splitting time between Colorado and Arizona. It's not that I don't like cold weather. It's just that I choose not to participate. So, <laughs> but I also, I, I ride bike a lot. I told you, I, I, uh, I set goals every year as to, as to what kind of riding I'm going to do. I just uh, completed last week, 6,200 miles in, two, in 2020. I'm right now setting goals this year for what I want to try to accomplish. I don't think I'm going to do that again, but I'm going to do something. And hopefully things will loosen up where we can travel again and come see you guys at, at the conferences. And I, I enjoy that a lot. I, I've got a lot of friends at Cambridge and associates around the country. I enjoy that immensely when we get together. But I also just recently hooked up with a, an organization that helps underprivileged kids in high schools around the country access scholarships. So in fact, I've got a conference call tomorrow afternoon where we're going to listen to six young leaders lead discussions on various topics. Then we will make recommendations as to which ones should go to the next round and, and compete for full scholarships. So these kids are coming out of inner city high schools and poorer neighborhoods. And if they qualify, they'll receive a full scholarship to some of the more prestigious universities around the country. What a fulfilling opportunity. When did you start that recently? You know, I just heard about it. I mentioned an interest in it. And in fact, Nicole heard about this organization and sent me the email. She said, I know you, you talked about this and thought you might be interested. So I contacted them and did the interview this week. And tomorrow I'm going to sit in on a screening and we'll, we'll listen to some young people express some leadership. That's fantastic, especially with what's going on in our world today. We need young leaders to be out there learning how to continue to lead far into the future for those of us that are a little older and may not have the energy to keep it up, right? You know, if there's anything that concerns me about our world today is the vacuum of leadership. Our leaders need to lead, you know, so, and, and you know, that's one thing I appreciate about you and Eric is that and this is really interesting that we discovered during the transition process. There's a lot of differences between leadership and management. Management doesn't have to look forward. They have to look backwards. And leadership has to look forwards. And that's a gift, I think. And I, I think those people that have the gift of leadership or have the ability to lead really need to step out and not be shy. 
if you've got a vision for where things should go, you should should be bold and 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 move forward and turn around and see who's following, and you might find out that you're quite a leader. It's difficult to lead or know how to lead if you don't have examples of good leadership in front of you. So in this role you're playing as you're asking these young people the tough questions so that they can give you an idea of whether or not they have the qualifications to be honored with these scholarships, I think is, even if they aren't the one chosen, it's a great experience. One of the graduates of this program, they've been doing this since 1999, it's called the Posse Foundation. And uh, one of the graduates of the program was just named the president of Ithaca College. Wonderful. Isn't that awesome? That is awesome. Well, David, we're nearing the end of our time, but I'd like you to spend some time, if you don't mind, telling us what do you think the future looks like for the industry and what is the biggest, best piece of advice you would give someone who was thinking about getting into our industry? You know, one, one of my big concerns is the lack of, of financial intelligence in our culture. I don't think that we'll ever see a time when the work that we do is not going to be needed. I think financial literacy is is something that it's not taught in schools and oftentimes it's not taught at home. And so we've got a whole culture that are financial illiterates. So I don't think the industry is going to suffer for lack of opportunity. I think that the digitization of our culture is going to make it much more difficult to make that connection. I don't think you can substitute trust with a digital interaction. I know that over my, and may, you know, hopefully I'm not being old fashioned, but over my years of experience, there's a, there's a level of trust that's established in the first few minutes of a relationship that establishes the sort of the ground rules for that relationship. I'm not sure you can do that digitally. But I don't know, Amy, I, we're really in new waters here, and I don't know if, if that's going to work or not. I do think that the digitization of the, of the industry is going to give some scalability and leverage to people that are successful at building those relationships. And we found that to be true in our business. We started doing video meetings five years ago. So I know how effective that tool is if the relationship is already established. But I think... I think for someone that's coming into the business, let, let me address this two ways. If, you, if you're a student and you're looking at pursuing this as a career, I would, I would focus on communication. I'd take courses in communication and psychology. I, I think that understanding people is the key to success in this business. I think it's good for people to do the investments, but frankly, uh, uh, we can hire that stuff done and we, and we do. If you're a person that's just in it for the money, you, you really should go look somewhere else. You need to go to the tech world or something. One of the things that I've always believed to be true is that money is an amplifier. It makes you more of what you already are. If you're a greedy person, you're going to be more greedy. If you're a generous person, you'll be more generous. So understanding money and how people relate to it is also a key to the business whether you see it as an end or a means to an end is a key to the business. So for someone that's looking at this as a career, it's the hardest job you'll ever love. You know, it's just hard sometimes. And you're, you're going to run into situations that'll break your heart because you can't do anything about it. And you have to do something about it anyway. 
this is really a, I, I believe that this, this business is a service business in the true sense of the word. That, that if you're not committed to serving the people that you're working with, whether it's your staff or your partners or your clients, or even your home office, if you're not committing to serving on all aspects of your relational field, then you're going to be limited in the amount of success you're going to experience. Great advice. I couldn't agree more. This is a relationship business, and I am honored to call you a friend as well as a client. So thank you for joining us. You are a great example of hashtag Cambridge Stronger. And I know that our audience will get a tremendous amount of value about listening to the lessons that you've learned. You are definitely not old fashioned. <laughs> well, listen, I appreciate our relationship. I will never forget the first time I met you in Iowa. Hopefully one day I'll be able to ride my bicycle across Iowa and uh, end up in Fairfield so I can finally come see the home office there. We would love to have you. In the meantime, I will get in touch next time I'm in Arizona. All right. Thank you so much, David, for joining us. It's my pleasure, Amy. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Cambridge Stronger. I invite you to listen to my podcast episodes where I have candid conversations with genuine, inspirational financial professionals and leaders within this fiercely independent financial services industry. The best of the best, the strongest of the strongest. You can listen to my podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Pandora, iHeartRadio, and the Podbean app. If you like what you've heard, please give us a review and head on over to our blog for more content at cambridgestronger.com. That's cambridgestronger.com. Stronger.